0: We'll hear argument now in number 92-1, uh, Linwood Moreau versus Johnny Clavenhagen. Mr. Leibig. Court.
1: The concern before the court today involves the precise rules under which a state or local employer may reach agreements to substitute time off for cash overtime with their employees. It involves the interpretation of section 2070 of the Fair Labor Standards Act and regulations issued under that section. It's important that, under the usual rules, to realize that the Fair Labor Standards Act makes non-cash payment for overtime work illegal (laughs) completely. It always has, and there's a reason for this. In 1937, when President Roosevelt first sent a message to Congress about the Fair Labor Standards Act, He emphasized that one of the main purposes was to protect the unorganized and to establish an hours of work rule. It might seem that the comp time rule or the cash overtime rule isn't directly related to the overtime rules, but it is. The reason cash overtime is required is because other schemes that were in existence widely in the United States before 1937, for instance, paying for overtime in script or paying for overtime in in time off or comp time, are easily manipulated to avoid the 40-hour-a-week work rule. And that's the reason that the Fair Labor Standards Act itself, prior to the 1985 amendments which adjusted the Act to the public sector, uh, always outlawed compensatory time as a means of paying for overtime work. In the 1985 amendments, after this Court's decision in Garcia, Congress responded to requests from state and local governments to lighten the burdens that the Fair Labor Standards Act without a special statute would place on state and local government and made a number of changes in the Acts in specific response to pleas by state and local governments and their employees that special adjustments be made to recognize the special status of the states. States were effective in those pleas and Section 2 of the 1985 amendments allowed the use of comp time and also change the rules with regard to volunteers, and a number of other rules with regard to joint employment. Part of the, the amendments was Section 6, that expressly directed the Secretary of Labor to issue regulations interpreting the and implementing uh, the 1985 amendments. It's our argument that the, that Section 2070 that deals with uh, compensatory time and the conditions under which public employer may use compensatory time that is not otherwise available and are laid out in Section 20702A require an agreement. Uh, and the issue that the court needs to address today are the precise conditions under which an agreement needs to be
2: reached. There are couple- Speaking of the Secretary of Labor, Mr. Leipig, uh, why isn't he here? Do, do, we, do we know that? Or do you know that? Why isn't the Secretary of Labor... Yeah, I mean, why hasn't the government uh, expressed any view in this case?
1: Um, Your Honor, I'm not sure completely. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if it has something to do with the fact that the briefs in this case were due almost immediately after the election in which the administration changed. I see. And I think that relates directly to one of the arguments I want to make, which has to do with why, regula- why regulations when there's a statute. The way the Fair Labor Standards Act works generally is that it's an administrative act which is very dependent on the regulations, not only for the use of comp time, but across the board. And one of the flexibilities in the act, the portions of the act that are in regulations are, are in the executive branch, given to the executive branch by Congress, I think, partly specifically because of the increased flexibility that that allows over if they were in the statute themselves. And I think the increased flexibility has been demonstrated, particularly under the 1985 amendments. Not only did Congress make new amendments, but since then, on issues in which the states have been particularly concerned, they've gone to the Department of Labor and got adjustments to the regulations. In the Abshire case, which is a Ninth Circuit case dealing with who's exempt and who's not, uh, that case was appealed to the court, and the court denied Sir, but, but at the same time, state and local governments went to the Department of Labor, and the Department of Labor changed the rules with regard to exemptions, specifically to recognize the special needs of state and local government. Uh, and that shows one of the reasons that it's wise under the Fair Labor Standards Act to have regulations dealing with this kind of an issue. I want to en- emphasize that Congress was unmistakably clear that States as states are covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. Both Section 203 of the Act itself, subsections D and Acts, and Section 2070, Part 1, expressly and clearly leave no doubt that state and local employees are covered. Secondly, the 1985 amendments make it absolutely clear that the state function, that is, personnel functions and the relationship between personnel functions and the payment of overtime, is also specifically and clearly re- regulated by the statute. The, the question that I think the statute is ambiguous about is whether or not it's also clear that the statute requires an agreement prior to an employer using compensatory time. Where the ambiguity lies is in the situation where the employees designate a representative to deal with the employer, must an agreement be re- reached with the representative prior to the implementation of a compensatory time system. I is think that an
3: ambiguity solved by the Department of Labor's reg, the the one that's well, it's set out on page 28 of the red brief, uh, that the question of whether an employee's have a representative for purposes of 70 shall be determined in accordance with state or local law. I mean, does that does that, uh, is that the source of resolving the ambiguity?
1: The regulation is, but what's quoted. On page, the the reference to state law that's quoted in the red brief is not a reference to the regulations, it's a reference to the preamble of the regulation. And that sentence in the preamble is put in the middle of sentences before it and after it, which addressed one of the direct questions in this case. The question asked in which the reference to state law was made was, in a state that has collective, do you mean that you only need an agreement in states which have collective bargaining? And the preamble says, no, we didn't mean that. Our regulations don't say that. W- but we do believe that to determine who the representative is in a given state, there may be a reference to state law.
3: Doesn't it, isn't it also to be read by saying to determine whether there is a representative for the purposes of uh, of subsection one, you look to state law? In other words, does, does this, in, in a way, take the, take the same position that the... Uh, I think it was the Senate version of the legislative history, uh, took.
1: The, I think that there's two questions there. You know, the first is the difference between the Senate and the House report. If I could hold that for a minute, I'll comment on that. The, the other question about whether you look for state law, I do think you look to state law to determine whether or not there's a representative. But when you look to state law, you do not look merely to state collective bargaining law. In other words, you're not just looking to state law to see whether or not there's a collective bargaining statute or not. If you were, The wording in the statute would be much simpler than it is now. It would not refer to all the things other than collective bargaining, which even little i1 refers to. So that that you do look to state law, but you look for such things if there is state law providing for collective bargaining, then state law requires exclusive representation and requires that unilateral changes can't be made on any wage, hour, working condition without dealing with that representative. That model, the National Labor Relations Act model, exists in less than 25 states, and even in those states, there are all sorts of other models in place for different types of employees. Most states have different types of models ranging from a meet and confer model where you have to meet but you don't have to agree to having a situation in Texas where there's a Texas state statute that says employees can have a representative, but the representatives don't have the rights to collective bargaining agreement. So that I think but what the what the preamble of the regulation says, and I want to make clear this is the preamble of the regulation, so you've got to go it's a long drive from the statute to the preamble. But the preamble of the regulations, I think, are trying to say if two people show up or three people show up and say they're the representative, you look to state law. It might be agency law. It might be all sorts of law in the state.
3: Why don't you just as readily look to state law to determine what the significance of the designation of a representative is in states which do not allow collective bargaining agreements?
1: Because under the preamble, under that reference in the preamble, which is the only reference to state law in this area anyway, you read the whole paragraph, it starts off by somebody asking exactly that question. Do you look to state law to find out whether a collective bargaining representative can enter in full agreements? And the answer that the Department of Labor in the preamble gave is no. It's also the clear answer in the, the plain meaning of the regulations themselves contain a clear statement that the representative, what matters is the designation of the employees, not the recognition of the employer.
0: Mr. Leibold, where is the preamble set forth?
1: Uh, it, it's easier for, he, he uh, Justice Souter referred to the red brief, but I think it's easier if you have the uh, petitioner, the petition, the third appendix, it is set forth in pages 30A uh, and 32, oh, I'm sorry, that's the actual regulation. The preamble is set forth in 33A through 30, 35A. Thank you. The actual regulations are in the pages just before that. Um, if I could also mention the Senate and House report that Justice Souter asked about. The, the House report refers to designated representatives and the regulation, that is the regulation on 30A through 32A, adopts pretty much the House report. The argument is made by the petitioners that the House report may support that, but what about the Senate report? And I think the answer to that is, if you look with rigor at the House and Senate report, you'll find that the actual language of Section 2070 l was the direct language of the House report, not the Senate report. During the uh, Conference Committee, this section, it was the language of the House report that, that became 2070 precisely, and if you compare it, you'll see what I mean. I don't think there were differences in the wording for this point in the statutory language, but the structure of the House report became, therefore, you look to the legislative history of the House report and not the Senate report, because the language that was enacted is the House language.
4: Mr. Liebig. Um, you you argue basically that the statute is ambiguous and we ought to refer to a regulation. Do okay. you think we have to take into account the, the case of Gregory against Ashcroft in interpreting this statute? Certainly, it is a traditional state function to determine uh, whether the state is going to negotiate over over time and whether the state must pay it. And true, uh, the statute does contemplate that states will be subject to it, but perhaps it doesn't contemplate it in the, the fashion you suggest. And if, if we look to Gregory against Ashcroft, we might come to a different conclusion, do you suppose?
1: Um, no, Your Honor. I don't think if you looked to Gregory v. Ashcroft, you would come to a different conclusion for this reason. First of all, I think on its face, Gregory speaks of interfering with the usual state and local functions. And uh, it it does not, it seems to refer to the question of coverage. The Congress, Congress has to be clear about coverage. I grant it not just coverage of the states as states, but also coverage of the function of the state that is being regulated. Everybody agrees that this statute regulates the use of comp time by state and local employees. The question that the statute's ambiguous about is how do you arrange comp time agreements? In the statute, if you look to Gregory, Congress expressly says in the statute, there's an express delegation of regulations, and the regulations do this. Now, the reason I think it's really the interchange between Chevron and Gregory and how do you read those together. And I don't think the court, uh, I don't think that there are precedent I can cite to say how you read the two together. I think that's a, a real challenging situation. I do think, though, if Gregory meant to abandon Chevron, we are launched on a very dangerous course. Because, for example, in the, the report on intergovernmental relations that was submitted uh, by the Amiki, it lists a great number of state statutes, 30, 32 statutes, I believe, passed before 1981 that regulate state and local functions. And most of those statutes rely on regulations. The Fair Labor Standards Act will not work without its regulations, not just on the comp time issue, but it wouldn't work on many issues, and Congress knew that. So I think that's the first point. The second point is I do think, and there's been a, n- a number of law review commentary on the importance of increased rigor, rigor for Chevron, at least when it interacts with Gregory, but some would say generally. To the degree that you are a literalist or a strict constructionist in a general sense of strictly looking at the words and, and meanings of statutes, then it. You should also be quite rigorous about Chevron, and I recognize that. Therefore, it Well,
4: well, if you just look at the terms of the statute in the absence of the regulation, uh, doesn't it appear to say that if employees aren't covered by subclause I, then uh, an agreement uh, between the agency and the employee will will govern, in
1: effect? Subclause yeah, I in the happens. first, subclause two I, mm-hmm. in the first prepositional phrase says, in the case of employees not covered by subclause one, mm. granted. Yes. The problem is subclause one has a list of types of agreements, not types of employees. Subclause one, and and that's where the ambiguity lies. I don't think you can get to where I want to get by reading the statute alone. But but you cannot also get to where. The other side wants to get to, by reading. It the statute. seems That's why to me you video. can
4: you can get pretty far by just looking at the terms of the statute. Perhaps the regulation um, simply isn't permitted.
1: If let's do that for a minute. If you just read the terms of the statute, you get a situation in in the in, as read by uh, the Harris County. You get a situation where the statute would then say, if you want an agreement, you need a collective bargaining agreement, a memorandum of understanding, any other form of agreement, an agreement with individual or an agreement with individual employees. That basically covers every possible type of agreement you had. If that's what this means, you didn't need Section 2A at all, because you could have just said the employer can have comp time whenever they want to because all they have to do is refuse every agreement, and they're automatically in a place where they can impose, as Harris County did, as a condition of employment cap time. So if that's what Congress meant, first of all, they didn't need any of these words.
2: Well, but, but, the, but realistically, the employer is not in a position to refuse every collective bargaining agreement that's, uh, that's pressed upon them. I mean, you're quite right that they, that they could get there by simply refusing every agreement, but, but realistically, that's not an available option.
1: It isn't an an available option in a limited number of states in the United States, and if Congress wanted to say that, they could have. But it is an available option in more than, for for police employees, for example, well over 50% of total police employees in the United States, it is an available option. It's an option, in fact, in this case, Harris County took. They, they claim their agreement is based on an auditor's report. It's a form that you file when you're hired. It has your name, a bunch of boxes filled in, how much money you're going to pay. And then a little print at the bottom of the box that says, I accept this employment and the conditions and regulations. And that's what you sign. It be-
2: yeah. still not be a vain act by Congress to set it up this way because it would preserve for those states that did have uh, collective bargaining with public employees under under 2a little little i it would preserve uh, the uh, the power and the and the position of the union in those states but in uh, that you case, should be the last person to you know to criticize in, it
1: in that case though 2 little i would just say collective bargaining agreements it wouldn't say first of all it wouldn't say under, memorandum of understanding in the normal sense but there's you could argue about that but it wouldn't say any other agreement between the public agency and representatives Obviously, this statute is not meant to provide only, that you only need agreement in states with collective bargaining. I think you do need an agreement in states with collective bargaining, and that's why the preamble of the regulations makes the reference to looking at state law, to find out how state law sets up rights of representation. I'd emphasize in Texas, there isn't a collective bargaining statute, but there is a statute that says public employees can deal with their employer through a representative not to reach contracts but to deal with them on all sorts of other things and the, and the actual representative in this case regularly represents its members in grievances and before the city council in all sorts of ways and has other agreements with harris county that are enforced regularly it has a dues checkoff agreement right. it deals with harris county all the time so that you're right if, if congress wanted to say there's only two situations states with collective bargaining and they have certain special, special rights in states without collective bargaining, and in those states you can impose this as a, as a term and condition of employment, they wouldn't have used these words. More than that, what this, th- these words are ambiguous if you look at them rigorously. And therefore, what these words meant, Congress vested in the Department of Labor, appropriately, I would say, even under a rigorous application of Chevron to decide, not in the courts to decide, in the
5: Department
2: of Labor. I mean, words can be ambiguous, but there's, you know, there's a scope of ambiguity. Uh, Red can mean, you know, READ or RED, but it can't mean donkey. Uh, And is is what you're urging upon us within the scope of, of the ambiguity here?
1: I think so, and I think the way you judge that is you look at the words and see if they're unclear. Not one, one definition of ambiguity is two meanings, but other de- the, the word ambiguity, I think, is also used to mean when a stat in this context, the c- context of using regulations, when a statute is unclear.
2: Why but to decide the, that? You- the, the critical phrase is employees not covered by subclause I, and as you point out, subclause I does not describe employees, but it describes agreements. Why wouldn't it, therefore, be logical to say? you know, uh, that it means employees uh, not covered by agreements under sub under subpart I.
1: That wouldn't be logical for a number The first reason it wouldn't be logical is because if you play that out, what that would mean, Congress wouldn't have needed all these words to, to say that. That's why. The second reason is, if you look at the overall structure of the 1985 amendments, that doesn't make sense, as we've explained in the brief. But more importantly, if you look at the structure of the Fair Labor Standards Act as a whole, It wouldn't make sense because it would vest employers with the possibility of doing what's exactly happened in Texas, that is, completely abrogate the need for any agreement at all, because if time can be imposed as a condition of employment.
2: Well, those are all good policy reasons, but but what you urge upon us instead is that it means employees who do not have a representative?
1: No, what I urge on you is the statute is ambiguous. It could mean, and it would be reasonable for it to mean what you described earlier, it also could mean that the people covered by one are those people that have a representative in their could get various forms of agreement. The question before the court is, but who I, decides which it means?
2: But I don't see how yours is one of the available options. I'm not sure that yours is within the scope of the ambiguity.
1: If, if you. If, for, you mean because, it could only mean
2: because you're you're not covered by, by little I. You are not an employee covered by little I. Simply because you have a representative.
1: Whether you're an employee covered by little, first of all, there's a couple of reasons why I think you are. One one is from the regulations. But let me make another point. If you look, first of all, if you read it, there is doubt about it. Enough doubt, at least I would argue, to look at the legislative history. Both the Senate and the House report don't agree, do agree about one thing, that I is meant to apply only where, in every case where there's a representative, and 2I only applies where there's not a representative. And both the Senate and the House reports are very clear about that, and specifically uh, indicate uh, at, in the Senate report, in the petitioner's appendix at 101A, and the House report at 36A. So they both say the meaning that I said is what it means that whether there's an agreement or not. The re- one, another reason is the logical force of it. If you do not have, if I only applies to where there are actually agreements, then even in states where there's collective bargaining, if there was collective bargaining agreement between an, a designated representative in the state, and it didn't deal with comp time, the petitioner would argue they can use comp time, even though under state law they would not ordinarily be able to use comp time because they would be changing wage or working conditions unilaterally. Therefore, if that's what it meant, you would raise the same problems that, that uh, petitioners complain about, that is, Congress imposing on states that chose to have collective bargaining a requirement other than their law would, would require. So that I, the, the lack of logic, one of the reasons that you look beyond the statute is the lack of logic of the other interpretation. Now, I must admit, to get to the full brunt of the lack of logic, you have to look at what is this all about? This whole thing is to keep states from using comp time in a way that would undermine the basic 40-hour standard of the statute, which it can easily do. Let me give you an example of what happens in Harris County. What actually is happening in Harris County is an individual deputy sheriff, it's, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon and the county needs somebody to work till midnight. The individual deputy is supposed to get off at 6. The county will can, and this this is legitimate, nobody's completed this, can order them to stay until midnight, work six extra hours. Without these amendments, they would have to pay for that in cash. But Congress, in order to lift burdens from the state, said you can pay for that time in comp time. So they pay him in comp time. He then has nine hours on the books, because he gets six hours at time and a half. He has nine hours comp time. The problem, and what happens in Harris County now is, and then that week ends, the next week, when you have unil- unilaterally imposed comp time, every day the sheriff can come to that deputy at, uh, five o'clock and he's supposed to work to six and say, go home today because I gotta eat up your comp time bank. And therefore they devalue the comp time. And there's other ways that that could be done.
0: How, how do you mean devalue it? Don't give him enough notice to make any use of it? Right.
1: If, for example, if he were paid in money, he could take the money and put it in a bank. You have the money there. When you're paid in comp time, as Senator Black, that is Hugo Black, who was the sponsor of the 1938 uh, Amendment, said, if an employer pays you in time off, then you can put the comp time in a bank, and they call it a comp time bank. But unless you have an agreement that works out this is going to work and what actually happened in Harris County, the employer can come to you and say, withdraw the money from the bank today, go home, eat right inside your regular schedule, and that happens. That's what my clients are asked. Is, is
0: there any reason to think that that practice by an employer was condemned by Congress in this
1: statute? First of all, that practice was condemned by Congress in the Fair Labor Standards Act when they outlawed Compton. What happened in this
5: statute... But here they've reintroduced time. Right, they've reintroduced
1: it, that's my point. They've reintroduced it, but reintroduced it by putting certain restrictions on it. The reason for the restrictions is to open the window for state and local governments by lightening the burden a little bit, or half way. And as we cited in our, our brief, uh, the article by uh, Easterbrook where he points out is once the Congress, uh, the state and local government went to Congress and said, we want some relief from this statute. Congress said, get together with your employees, and this is in the legislative history, figure out what kind of relief you want and come and tell us. They did. Both, both people said, both House and Senate said, little I is what controls. Then, after the rules were passed, uh, now, state and local government wants to say, if you open up the window a little bit, you've got to lift it all the way. If that happens, that will undermine federalism, because in the future, Congress will not leave these areas where they can regulate to leave flexibility, which I think they've done under the Act. If I could reserve the rest of my time. For
0: Very well, Mr. Liebig, Mr. Stryker?
5: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioners here have created confusion where there is none. The plain language of subsection O of section 207 is clear, and it does not require going to extrinsic sources at all. And this is where the petitioners have created their confusion. The word agreement is the subject of both subpart 1 and subpart 2 of section 207, subsection 02A. And with that understood, the meaning of the statute is clear and no part of subsection O is rendered superfluous. The plain meaning of paragraph two is that a public agency may provide compensatory time only pursuant to one, an agreement between the public agency and representative of the employees, or two, pursuant to an agreement between the employer and the employee. And I note that in Harris County, this is exactly what's, what has occurred as each Harris County employee, as each one of the petitioners has stepped up to accept employment. They have signed this individual form that Mr. Leibig mentioned well, and have agreed to the terms.
4: Mr. Stryker, do you take the position that if they're in a state where there is a collective bargaining agreement, but the agreement does not allow uh, it just doesn't cover comp time. Now, do you think in such a state that the county would be able to enter an agreement with employees such as you have in this case, an individual employee to to cover?
5: Justice O'Connor, I, I don't know the answer to your question, mm-hmm. and that is one of my points, that one would need to go to that particular state's law to determine under which section one can be? Well, doesn't doesn't that indicate the statute's ambiguous?
6: I I don't know what the answer to Justice O'Connor's question is. And to me, that makes the statute ambiguous. That is to say, if there is a collective bargaining agreement, but it's silent with respect to comp time, I'm not quite sure how to read uh, the statute. there Perhaps is. you think it's clear. D- does little i, or, or, or number 2, 2i two control?
5: Yes, Justice Kennedy, I believe it would. There being no agreement in Justice O'Connor's uh, scenario then under subpart i, then one would go to, one would be authorized to go to subpart 2.
2: Then why don't you know the answer? I
5: believe, then, Justice... That is the I believe, uh, that, ...that I, uh, if I understood Justice O'Connor's question correctly, then, if there is no agreement under uh, subpart I, then one would be authorized to go to subpart two. Well,
6: but that's the question. Is, is there an agreement, if there is a collective bargaining agreement, that's silent? That doesn't seem to me that the answer to that is self-evident.
5: If one focuses on the words of of this particular statute and focuses on the subject of of, uh, subpart one, that being, is there an agreement reached between a representative and the the, uh, employer, if there is no such agreement, then one would go to subpart two.
6: But it's not clear that there is such agreement, because it doesn't talk about agreement. It talks about agreement uh, with reference to compensatory time.
5: I perhaps don't understand your question, Justice Kennedy, but if there is no agreement reached between the representative in those states that recognize a representative and that one can meet and confer with that representative, then one would go to subpart two.
6: Well, I I certainly think some employers could argue that uh, single-eye controls, that there is an applicable provision. It just says nothing about it. I think that's a plausible construction.
5: One would have to go to the state law to to determine the result of that uh, answer, and in in Texas, as we have stated in our um, reply brief, in our appendix, in Texas we cannot recognize a representative. It is against public policy.
6: Well, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the meaning of the statute in the context of the hypothetical agreement we've outlined. And then there's also the question of whether or not an employee is authorized to conclude it. But those are two separate questions.
2: I suppose you would look at, te- if you're going to look at Texas law for little i as to whether uh, whether you have a uh, a union agreement under little i, I suppose you look at Texas law for too little i as well, right? I mean, if state law prohibits individual agreements apart from the collective bargaining agreement with the authorized union, then you cannot have an agreement or understanding arrived at between the employer and employee under too little i, right? Is that your position? No.
5: No? No. If, if, uh, if in Texas, as we are, prohibited from entering into an agreement with the representative of employees, then we would be authorized, as we are, to enter into an individual agreement with the employee.
2: I understand, but I'm talking about another state that has public employee unions and that prohibits employees from dealing with the public employer apart from their union. In such a state, the employees would be disabled from making agreements under too little i wouldn't they yes, yes there would be no be agreement or understanding so you you would preserve you would preserve the exclusive bargaining power of the uh, of the authorized union
5: if that was the effect of that state's law yes that it was the exclusive bargaining agent I'd like to continue then on that that particular point that um, the plain meaning of the statute, that being the subject is of both part one and two, is agreement. It allows the state laws to be preserved. With all the various state laws out there, I, I ask how one can override this plain meaning of the statute. I want to now turn your attention to the background in which subsection 207 arose, in order to gain a correct understanding of subsection 207. This court had just decided the Garcia case in February of 1985, which extended provisions of the FLSA to state and local governments. However, a great great variety of compensatory time arrangements had developed between public employers and their employees and long-standing practices existed concerning the use of compensatory time, which were of mutual benefit to both the public employee and the public employer. This background of mutually beneficial compensatory time arrangements was the background in which Congress passed Section 2070. Already by November of 1985, Congress had passed this Section O to help public employees and public employers preserve their mutually beneficial compensatory time practices. Congress was not for a minute going to allow the full weight of the Garcia decision to descend upon the public employers, be they state governmental governments or local governmental entities. And for that proposition, I point you to um, the appendix for the petition for writ of cert, uh, page 65A, page 72A, 89A, 114A. And also the Garcia decision itself talks about this background in which um, um, this existed when the um, Garcia decision was handed down. Properly understood in light of this congressional purpose to preserve existing compensatory time practices, it's hard to imagine how Congress could have improved upon the statutory language that was actually chosen in Section 207-O. Is your position
7: the, uh, that the employer may, may on his own... Uh, Uh, substitute comp time for for overtime, uh, even if he doesn't deal with individual employees?
5: No, the employer can't uh, in those states that provide for dealing with the employees as they do in in Texas and Harris County. So
7: uh, does Harris County forbid dealing with individual employees?
5: no in in this particular case, um, all of the petitioners have signed individual compensation forms mm-hmm. whereby they accept the um, comp, time. comp time arrangement which exists in the personnel regs of Harris county and by the way those the uh, those regulations provide or the individual agreements provide that the first Uh, 240 hours of compensatory time shall be placed in a bank for the employee, so-called a comp-time bank. After 240 hours, by the way, those hours are time and a half hours, after that time, the employees receive cash for each hour worked at the rate of time and one half.
2: Mr. Stryker, you, you say it's hard to imagine how they could have, could have put it better. I can imagine how they could have put it better. If, if it means what you say, it means they could have said in, in too little I, absent such applicable provisions, comma, an agreement or understanding arrived at between the employer and employee. That, that, that's the meaning you want to give it, right? Yes. That would be a much clearer way to put it, don't you think? Instead of in the case of employees not covered by subclause I? I believe they stated that, Justice
5: Scalia, when, when they said, those employees not covered by subsection 1.
2: Well, it would have made sense to me to say, pursuant to, little i, applicable provisions of a collective bargaining agreement, blah, 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 or other agreement, little two, absent such applicable provisions, comma. That's very clear.
8: Isn't that clear?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but they didn't say
6: that. Blah, blah. Well, do you take the provision of the statute uh, that refers to agreements, or to groups, or to types of employees?
5: Does it refer to types of agreements? To an agreements, the subject of both subpart one and subpart two is is agreement. It just cannot be any clearer than that. The statement of the statute we could reread Paragraph 2 to to gain this understanding, a public agency may provide compensatory time only pursuant to subpart 1. There it talks about an agreement between the public employer and a representative. And 2, also the subject matter is pursuant to an agreement. There it happens to be talking about an agreement entered into by the employer and the individual employee but it, it it just cannot be any clearer that that the subject matter is agreement in both subparts
8: may i may i ask you uh, if what if there were an agreement collective bargaining agreement in existence which prohibited the use of comp time would uh, subparagraph 2 apply those employees would not be permitted to do it by a collective bargaining agreement they were forbidden to do it
5: i don't believe um, justice stevens that subpart two could apply because in section um subsection o subpart b it talks about existing collective bargaining agreements And if the existing collective bargaining agreement were, were son one were in no compensatory time was allowed, uh, then that collective bargaining agreement would have been entered into pursuant to subpart one, and that would be the relationship between that employer and those employees uh, haven 't labor department uh, regulations been against you? Justice White, I believe there's there's ammunition for both sides. But uh, several of the justices this afternoon pointed out the um, uh, recognition by the Secretary of Labor himself that whether or not an employee has a representative shall be determined by state law. Mm -hmm. One just cannot overcome that. In this case, and it's extremely important in this case to to remember that, because under Texas state law, one cannot have.
7: But I would I would think you would argue that it wouldn't make any difference whether they had a representative or not. They might have a representative, but they would
5: have no agreement. That's correct. I, I'm sorry. Perhaps I misunderstood, but. But again, the end result is there must be an agreement necessarily because we cannot. There must be recog- a
2: collective bargaining agreement with that representative. That's correct. What What do you do with, with the language in the in the statement of basis and purpose for the rule, which uh, which says that the department believes that the proposed rule accurately reflects the statutory requirement? According to the agency, that a CBA memorandum of understanding or other agreement be reached between the public agency and the representative of the employees where the employees have designated a representative. If they have designated a representative, says says this, uh, the agreement must be reached with that representative. Preemption preemption or the, the – um, I think then we have
5: come into the uh, Gregory v. Ashcroft area where there must be a plain statement by Congress to uh, upset the balance, the traditional balance between federal and state rights. There is no such plain statement made by Congress in this subsection O. Well,
2: I mean, my goodness! It, it has to be in every detail of a scheme. They, they, they have made the decision to apply the Fair Labor Standards Act to the states. That's the that's the decision. It's clear that the states are going to be bound by the Fair Labor Standards Act. I agree with you. And you're saying that every detail of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Must, moreover, be particularly clear as applied to the states. Otherwise, in every little section of the Act, you're going to have one rule for the states and one rule for the private employer. That doesn't strike me as very sensible.
5: I agree with you, Justice Scalia, certainly, that it uh, was the intent of Congress to apply, or of this Court to apply the FLSA to the state and local governments, but it is not the intent of this Court without a plain statement by Congress to upset the traditional relationship between the uh, rights of the states and the, uh, the federal rights.
3: Well, is, isn't it your argument that the, uh, that the requirement for plain statement in effect uh, arises because um, otherwise, uh, the the, uh, the the secretary or Congress, depending on whether you zero in on the reg or the statute, would be foisting uh, or mandating a collective bargaining obligation onto the states that they did not have. Isn't That's that an, isn't that, that, that your point? Correct, Justice
5: Souter. It um, although the the Chevron case talks about the the uh, secretaries or the administrative regulations, but the Gregory. Thirty-four case talks about what Congress can do and to um, allow the regulations to have greater, to have the uh, Chevron case take precedent over the Gregory case would allow the, the regulations to do what Congress itself cannot do.
6: Is it your view in, in, in Texas that uh a public employer can use subclause one if it if it wants to, or that it must always use subclause two.
5: In in Texas, if the um, pursuant to the statute, the Police and Firemen's Act, a election were held authorizing the um, uh, collective bargaining arrangement, then then it one th- could get into subsection one, and and that of course is. Um, <coughs> Page 3A in our brief in opposition to the petition for writ of cert. Specifically, uh, page 7A of that act, section 5, upon the adoption of the provisions of this act by any city, town, or political subdivision in this state to which this act applies, as herein in this section provided, Firefighters and or policemen shall have the right to organize and bargain collectively with their public employer as to wages, hours, working conditions, and all other terms and conditions of employment. And upon the passage of of that statute and upon an election whereby the, the local voters adopt specifically this act, then only Justice Kennedy could a local governmental entity in in Texas come under subsection 1.
0: Mr. Stryker, uh, there's been some colloquy between the bench and you and your your opponent about the provisions of a regulation. There's been reference made to something on page 34A of the appendix that that apparently is the reaction of the Department of Labor uh, to request for comment on a rule and at the last paragraph on page 34a that covers carries over 35a it says the department believes that the proposed rule accurately reflects the statutory requirement that a collective bargaining agreement memorandum of understanding or other agreement be reached between the public agency and the representative employees where the employees have designated now what rule is that comment referring to do you know you know, it seems by its context, it must be referring to a previously promulgated rule or regulation.
7: Is there a regulation to that effect?
0: I believe
5: there is, Your Honor. Um, Where is it, do you know?
2: Well if, if
0: if you don't know just just proceed but it would set
2: forth on page 30a of the uh, of, of the uh, the appendix isn't it rule uh, section 553.23 as i believe i'm sorry as is set forth at the top of page 33a they are this is a statement of basis and purpose it's not just a response to comments either it's the statement of basis and purpose it must be adopted uh, with the rules, and it's it's, it's as uh, authoritative as the rules themselves. It's it's a part of the adoption of the rules, isn't it? I I believe you're you're right, Justice
5: Scalia. It um, on page 38 talks about if the employees do not have a representative, compensatory time may be used in lieu of cash. Only if there is such an agreement or understanding. But I I wish to note, Justice Rehnquist, that. The comment on page 34a by the, the secretary does not mean that that he refused the point that that this particular governmental entity was making, and I would submit that it can be read congruently with with my interpretation that if if the subject matter of a subclause one is agreement, there being no agreement reached. Then, therefore,
7: yes, but if, what if the regulation says if there's a representative, if there's a representative been designated, there has to be an agreement, regardless of what
5: state law says. This statute, Your Honor, does not say that, though.
2: And well, there, the regulation does, uh, in, on page 31A, subpart C. Where employees of a public agency do not have a recognized or otherwise designated representative, the agreement or understanding concerning compensatory time off must be between the public agency and the individual employee. But that's only the case where employees do not have a recognized or otherwise, desi- or otherwise designated Representative, and that language at the bottom of 34A is, in, as I understand it, an explanation of that same provision.
7: Well, is there, now, some, uh, is there some case or some law that says that a state uh, may uh, forbid uh, or may not forbid uh, collective agreements between the, their employees and uh, a union? I take it you think Texas is is uh, statutorily and constitutionally capable of forbidding such agreements.
5: I believe, Your Honor, that is the case. This is why the um, um, states have been free to to regulate right. labor relations. And if I could also make one point in in regard to the prior question. Well, that, if that's the law, it, uh, uh, certainly the. Uh,
7: If if that's the controlling law, the the, uh, regulation to the extent it says that if there's a representative been been named, there must be an agreement. Uh, That just doesn't hold up.
5: And that is not what what this particular subpart I speaks of. If I could... Take a brief moment to spend on, on uh, page 31A that this, the regulation states where employees of a public agency do not have a recognized or otherwise designated representative. Harris County, or, uh, nor any local governmental entity in Texas, can recognize a, de- a designated representative. It is not possible to enter into an agreement in Texas with a representative unless the election that we previously discussed has been held.
8: May I, you said they can have a representative, they just can't enter into an agreement with them. That's right. Uh, Literally, be, they have a representative. But not for
5: um, the purposes of subsection O to enter into a compensatory time agreement. The representative in Texas, as was previously discussed, can present grievances and um, other concerns, employee concerns, but because of 5451C and C-1, we cannot meet and confer with a union representative of a public employee
8: to enter into a... Uh... Of course, if you read the Secretary's regulation literally, that just would mean that's kind of tough luck. You cannot make the agreement that you need to make to uh, provide for comp time. And that's one way to read it. It's unfortunate, but state law just disables you from taking advantage of this uh, exception in the statute.
5: Justice Stevens, if if it were to stop there, uh, that may be true, but but we have not stopped there. We do have individual agreements with the employees.
8: Yes, but if the re- regulations uh, mean what they say, literally, and they may or may not, you weren't entitled to do that because the subparagraph I prohibition kicked in and said you can't have it, uh, as, as interpreted by the Secretary. Well, I, I'm just covering the same ground
2: I gather that that your answer in your brief or in somebody's brief to the language at the bottom of thirty four a was the language at the top of thirty five a wasn't it namely, the sentence that says it is the department's intention that the question of whether employees have a representative for purposes of 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 flSA section seven o shall be determined in accordance with state or local law and practices that and the preceding sentence I gather could be interpreted to mean that you cannot have a uh, an agreement with a designated representative if the state law does not permit that agreement.
8: That's that's exactly correct. Yeah, but what it says is whether well, you shall have a representative, not whether you shall have an agreement with a representative. I mean one can it's really that's not very clear.
0: God, the whole
5: If I could take a moment with with the impact of uh, the court's decision, it could have a substantial impact not only on the respondents, but on uh, all state and local governmental entities. It would have an impact um, in regard to their ability to provide essential services to the citizens of those entities. And I don't, can't think of a more um, quintessential Service to the employee, to the people of a local government entity than the police services. The current value of Harris County's. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Stryker. Mr. Leibig, you have four minutes remaining.
1: Um, I'd just like to make uh, three points. Uh, the first one deals with Texas law. Uh, I'd like to point out that the, the statute referred to. Uh, by Mr. Stryker, uh, also says in Section 6 that employees may have representatives and the representatives may deal with uh, issues arising in in the workplace, including wages, hours, and working conditions. I admit it it, it prohibits having a collective bargaining agreement, but it does allow representation. It's very important, and we've emphasized in our brief, that we are not claiming, and the Fair Labor Standards Act does not require, that there be a collective bargaining contract covering comp time. The only, it, it requires a special new entity directed by Congress, which is a Comp Time Agreement under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The only consequences of having an agreement is that you can use comp time. The only consequences of violating the agreement is that if you're sued for cash overtime, you do not have that
3: defense. Which yeah, but to that ready. extent, you would have a collective bargaining agreement. Well, it's and not you a collective call it anything you want to, but it's a collective bargaining agreement on that subject.
1: It's not a collective bargaining agreement in the sense that collective bargaining agreements are ordinarily agreements between one, between exclusive representatives and their employees. They normally the situation in which collective bargaining agreements of the kind we're talking about are created normally prohibit unilateral dealings between employees. This is different than that. As the the Fifth Circuit pointed out, a deputy sheriff in Texas could designate his minister to be his representative, or a lawyer, or anybody to be the representative. It's only if they want a representative, you have to deal with the representative. And the reason for that is to encourage voluntariness of the agreements.
8: You contend as a matter of Texas law that the uh, collective bargaining agent can enter into comp time agreements?
1: As a matter of Texas law, employees can designate a representative. Even Texas law gives them the right to do that and recognizes the right of the representative to act for the employees, as an agent would act for the employees. Then they can enter into an agreement. If Once the agreement's entered... You the- should
8: tell me yes or no. Yes. Right. Yes, I do.
1: Once an agreement's entered, though, it's very important to be the only way to enforce the agreement is as a defense against statutory claims under the Fair Labor Standards Act for cash. It's not enforceable anywhere else, and that's the only consequence of the agreement. The the state's courts can refuse to recognize it as a contract, a collective bargaining contract. Another difference is it's not an exclusive representative situation. Each employee can designate or not designate whoever they want.
7: Bargaining agreement, whether it's enforceable or not in this case. Right. And the second thing I would like to point out... And so... so, uh, Are employees uh, covered by Little uh, I?
1: Little I? I think employees are covered by the employees in this case would be covered by they are employees who do not have an agreement and therefore you cannot use two Little I to do the record with them. One other thing I just want to make clear, while I'm time, is that. The, the agreement that the employer is referring to is just a form that has a little place at the bottom that you sign. It doesn't mention comp time. It doesn't mention anything. It says, as a condition of employment, you're accepting whatever regulations we have now or ever have, and we can change them whenever we want, and you sign that to get your paycheck. It's not a negotiated agreement.
2: I never doubted it, striker. Yeah. Stryker. <laughs> and the point,
1: the point of all this is the reason to, de- to require the designation of representative is the traditional way to guarantee that agreements are voluntary. If you have a represent, as long as employees have a right to have a representative, which is what we're talking about here, if they don't choose to have a representative, then you can presume when they send this form and are paid in that way, they were volunteers.
4: If they do designate
1: the representative, then you should have to deal with the representative. And if the representative, on an individual basis, works out an agreement, then that agreement is only useful for one purpose: is a defense against claims for cash by the state under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Does that position
3: take you beyond the? Uh, the Secretary's position in the ranks?
1: No, that is, I think that is the Secretary's Well, the Secretary
3: took the position that if you've got a collective bargaining agreement, this is the way you must agree on this subject. Did he take the position that if you don't have a collective bargaining agreement, there may be the kind of agreement that you speak of for defensive purposes, and it must be done in that way?
1: I think the Secretary's position is you either have to have one of the kinds of agreements talked about in little I-1. Which is not
3: necessarily a CBA.
1: Right, but the reason they say we look to state law, states can say... Public employees can only choose exclusive representatives, and if they do, they're, they're, they're regulating the choice of a representative, not the arrival of an agreement. And states can, and Texas has. Thank Texas you,
0: has a thank, thank you, Mr. Liebig. Your thank time you. has expired. The case is submitted.